We're going to look at, uh, at three scenes in Joshua, uh, from Joshua 2 and then Joshua 5. Uh, I'll, we'll track through in just a second here. Uh, let me start by opening up uh, with a word of prayer um, so that we can prepare our hearts and minds for what it is that we're going to hear and for whatever it is that God would, uh, would have us to learn. So pray with me, please. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we would see wonderful things from your word, that you would uh, move by the power of your Holy Spirit in whatever way you see fit. Uh, would you comfort and encourage those who uh, may be in a time of weakness or even despair? Uh, would you convict those who perhaps are apathetic or insensitive to the promptings of your spirit? We pray, uh, most importantly, that you would help us to be able to see uh, how the work that you have accomplished through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of your Son fits into uh, this program, this redemptive story that we see in the pages of Scripture. And to know that even these things that we read in Joshua here this morning ultimately were written for our encouragement and our instruction. Guide us now, we ask that all that we say and do and think and feel would please you, would honor you, and would be in line and in submission to the truth of your word. Amen. Um, for those of you who watch old movies, old movies and new movies, I, I don't think I'm the only one to notice this. It seems like a pretty stark contrast. Um, when you watch the, the old movies, the Gone with the Winds and stuff like that, you notice how in the, in the older movies, you kind of, there's the opening score, the music, and you get all the credits, right, up front. And you sit and sit and sit and sit. And then you sit some more. And you wait some more. And you, you have to go through however many minutes until you actually, the movie opens up and the story starts. Whereas today, more often than not, you typically have some sort of an opening scene or some sort of an event that's on the screen playing through as the credits just kind of a little bit more subtly, you know, come up on the screen or flash so that you've actually got something to watch and pay attention to. And I think some of that uh, says something just about kind of the way society and culture is going. We, we typically don't really like to wait or to sit around for no reason. Like if we're going to watch a movie, we, we want to watch a movie, get, get to the action. That's one of the beauties of, uh, of streaming, right? You don't have to worry about commercials. Nothing has to interrupt you. You watch it when you want, and you can fast forward to whatever scene you want in the show or in the movie, and you can just, it's, it's all action all the time. So when you, come to, when you come to passages of Scripture like Joshua, especially in the first five chapters of Joshua, one of the things that's worth noting is that we've been primed and ready for uh, Israel's entry into the Promised Land and to begin her conquest of the land. I mean, this has been building since Genesis, all the way back in Genesis 12 at least. But when you come to the storyline of Joshua, what you find is that for the first five chapters, there's really not very much that's happening. In fact, probably the best way to summarize or to consider the nature of, of Joshua 1 through 5 is that 1 through 5 is largely preparation for the conquest. 
Everything from commissioning Joshua to a call to unity to getting ready to cross the river to sending spies into the land. There's no actual taking land. There's no actual fighting or conquering. There are things that need to be done in these early stages. And the challenge, though, is to recognize that even in what seems to be the slow, boring times, that those are, those are still significant, those are important, because even in the prep stages, God is doing important work. So in Joshua 1 through 5, what he's doing is he's prepping people to receive the prize, the inheritance, the land that he had promised to give them. And I want to start right off just to make the connection from Israel to the church today to show that what Israel was experiencing is not so far removed from what we experience. At least there's an analogy there. It's not that, it's not that we are to experience the exact same thing that the people in Joshua's day did, but in the sense that Israel was approaching a new land and was going to go in and take possession of it because this was what God had promised them. This was the inheritance that He swore to give to His sons and daughters. There is an analogy to what God has also done for us and what He has promised us. So, just two passages of Scripture. We'll throw them up quickly on the screen. If you want to jot it down, you can. If, if not, don't worry. We'll get to Joshua here in just a second. First one is just this short, simple statement that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 5, where Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Israel is going in to inherit the land. The gentle are said to inherit the earth. And then there's another passage in Hebrews chapter 12 where we read this. His voice shook the earth then, but now He has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and offer our God as a consuming fire. A kingdom that's going to cover or that's going to include heaven and earth. There's a shaking that God is going to do where He upends the current world order, as it were, to make way for His people to enter into their promised rest, a new heaven and a new earth. That's what you get in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 and 22. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 8, where he says that even the creation groans and waits and longs for the revealing of the sons of God. So that really what our ultimate hope is, is yes, to be with the Lord, but to be with the Lord moving about a new creation, a bodily, physical existence. Let me just pause right here. I said we were going to get to Joshua in just in a second, and we will. We really are. Let me, let me pause here just for a second, though, and just word of encouragement, especially for parents and grandparents uh, when you're talking with kids. One of, one of the challenges, and I, I think we've probably all experienced this, you know, especially if you kind of grew up around the church or grew up, you know, hearing Christian talk and, and all of that, um, or if you grow up in a Christian home, is that oftentimes the hope or the future that we present to, especially to kids, is all framed in the language of heaven, Right? So when we die, we're going to go to heaven, 
and we're going to be with Jesus, which is true, gloriously true. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Don't want to diminish that at all. But it's worth noting, and it's worth trying to communicate, however, however slowly, to our children, that even heaven, as it exists right now, is something of a placeholder for what God really intends to give us. Right? What He intends to give us is this, the creation, the world. I, I don't want… Listen, Paul says it even. He says, if we were to go from this bodily existence into this just spiritual afterlife with no physical body to go along with it, no physical creation, Paul would say it would be like being unclothed, and we don't want to be unclothed. We want to be embodied. We have been created as embodied spirits. So when we come to Joshua, and when we see that Joshua and the people are going to take their inheritance, God is giving them the land, there is something analogous then to what God has promised to give to us. He has promised to give us nothing less than the heavens and the earth. And so while the experience and while the process by which that happens is different, we don't go out and we don't fight for, we don't physically conquer, God is going to remake everything and give it to us, there still is something to be said for how God is working and moving among His people and the fact, as we'll see here, that even in the preparatory stages, as we get ready to take our inheritance or as we get ready to receive it, important things are happening. So, for example, Pick up with me in Joshua 2. Familiar story probably for most of you. This is when the spies go into the land, two spies. They go, they check out Jericho. And as they're at Jericho, they happen to hide out in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. At great risk to herself, she lies to her own people, says, yeah, there are some spies who came. I don't know where they are. You know, I think they left the city. You can probably go find them. Meanwhile, you know, they're hit up on the roof, and she's putting her own life at risk in order to save these foreign spies, these enemies for all intents and purposes. And then we come to this statement that she makes after she sends the soldiers off or the security off on a wild goose chase. She comes up to the men on the roof. Pick up with me in Joshua 2 verse 8. We read this, now before they lay down, she came up to them, she, Rahab, came up to the spies on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage, literally no spirit, remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And then she has them swear to her. Swear that when you come back and when you take this city, swear that you will spare me and my family, that you'll save me. I know that, that you're about to take everything, that you're going to level, destroy this city, but save us in the midst of the destruction. That's 
quite a confession from this sexually immoral woman, don't you think? How, do, how does she come to, to this kind of a statement of faith? Did, did she see something? Did she experience something? Saw it on the Twitter feed, right? Clip on YouTube of what was going on in Egypt with the plagues. Oh, my gosh. You know, what's interesting is, if you consider the fact that Rahab most likely is under 40 herself, even the events that she talks about that happened in Egypt and what God did there would have happened before she was even born. She probably was not even alive when God brought Israel out of Egypt. She, like the rest of the Israelites, are sort of a, you know, a new generation contemporaries, peers with the second generation of Israel. So she's talking about events, one that she's never seen, that she did not participate in, that happened in a far distant land from where she is and happened before she was even born. How how does she come to know this? How is she so confident? How is she so confident in what she confesses that she is willing to turn her back on her own people to throw in with the Israelites? You, You see it. She says it. How did she come by this confession? She heard. That's not very fancy. That's not very exciting. Yeah, we here in Jericho, and and by the way, other people in the land we'll see in a minute, word trickled back to us about what God did way off there, way back when. And when I heard it and when we heard it, our hearts sank. We knew that God had done something, the real God. And so as a result, hearing the report totally transforms the mindset, the heart, the goals, and the aspirations of Rahab. Now, compare this to the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho along with the other Canaanite kings. So if you flip from here in chapter 2, go to 5.1. And I think, I hope you can see this. We've got a comparison we'll put up on the screen side by side. I hope you can see this. We, we underlined on the left-hand side is what Rahab said, her confession to the spies. On the right side is what we're told in 5.1. Notice how similar the two statements are. So in 5.1, after Israel has crossed the Jordan into the land, we read this in 5.1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. What, what brought about this dramatic change in the disposition, in the hearts and the minds of these rulers and kings? 
Did they see God stop the water? Did they see the river stop? And did they see Israel walk across on dry land? They heard. Notice, though, that out of all the inhabitants of Jericho and all the kings and rulers in the land of Canaan, they all heard the same message. They all have the same initial response, but only Rahab makes a confession of faith. Here's why, even in the Old Testament, this is important for us. This is all part of the process of this hearing and fearing transaction that takes place. So, number one, one of the things that we're reminded of when we consider these little brief encounters and statements in Joshua is that outsiders are delivered from certain destruction when they hear what God has done to save His people. Rahab ultimately will be saved not because she was convinced by what she saw or by what she experienced or by what she did, but by what she heard and what she believed. So Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Listen, in where we are right now, in, in this particular day and age, right, societal clashing, bitter political arguments, all that, right? One of the most underwhelming things that the Christian can do is to talk about the gospel. Underwhelming. Because if you're going to accomplish anything, you've got to make it dramatic. You have to do a march. And if they do a march, you have to have a counter-march. And you've got to have a thousand plus followers on your Twitter feed in order to get the word out. And you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And if there isn't some sort of big, overwhelming display, sign in the sky or on the screen on TV, well, must not be real enough. It was real enough for Rahab. In fact, do you remember the parable that that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus? This beggar Lazarus lives outside of this rich man's house. He begs, the, the rich man just ignores him. At the end of the day, lo and behold, the rich man ends up in hell, Lazarus in paradise. And the rich man is is begging for God to do something on behalf of his brothers who are still who are still living. And he asked, send Lazarus, essentially from the dead, send him from paradise to my brothers to warn them so that they don't come here. Said, no, they, they won't be. No, 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 no. If, if someone comes back from the dead, they will believe. And the statement is, they have Moses and they have the prophets. In other words, they have the word. If they don't believe them, 
They won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. If you don't believe the report, it doesn't matter. No sign, no wonder, no miracle ultimately is going to convince you unless you're convinced by the word that you hear. Parents, as you're laboring with your children, trying to draw them to the faith, trying to pack into their little skulls full of mush the truth of God's Word, remember that the simple act of soaking them in Scripture, the simple act of speaking truth to them is what God uses ultimately to bring them to Himself. He takes the truth of His Word, He takes the message of the gospel, the good news about what God has done in a far-off place, in a far-off time, and He uses that report by the power of His Holy Spirit to change the hearts and the minds of your little kids in His time, in His way. Those of you who are sort of the, the black sheep of the family because you're the crazy, kooky Christian. You're trying desperately to create a sympathetic audience in your family members or perhaps with coworkers or, or whatever it is. Do not underestimate the power of a spoken word at the right time. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that someone's conversion falls on your shoulders as if you have to do something in order to make it happen. You can't. Second thing we see, not everyone who hears will turn to God's salvation. Rahab heard the exact same message that everyone in Jericho heard. And she and her family were the only ones who were saved. The report that the Canaanite kings heard was actually more recent, more current. They heard about how the Israelites crossed the Jordan River. They're now in their backyard. They can see it for themselves. They heard. They don't turn. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. But we are mistaken to think that if only we tell them or if only we package the message in an appealing way or in a creative way or in an exciting way, if we just get them to hear it the right way, they'll be won over. Not true. Look at what Paul says as he considers his own ministry and the way that the word of salvation works. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then he says a little bit later in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, 
We preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The people who consider the message, the report, of what God has done in Christ, the ones who consider that foolish or offensive, is it because they didn't hear the right message, according to Paul? No. Paul says we have one message, we have one report. There is one event where God publicly defeats sin, death, and the devil, and He does it so all can see. He lifts up His Son on the cross so that everyone can be witness to it. And then we go out and we tell everyone about it. Some people hear the message, hear the news of that report, and instantly they're pierced to the heart and they turn and they throw their lot in with the people of God. Others hear the exact same message They can be standing right next to the person who has been convicted and cut to the core, and it falls on deaf ears. Is there anything that you or I can do to change that? No. In fact, if you want to muddy the waters a little bit more, Paul indicates that the people who hear are the ones who are already in the process of being saved. Which means that before I even go and have an opportunity to share with them the news, the report, God has already been working on their hearts and minds. He has prepared them for what they're going to hear and what they're going to receive. I don't have anything to do with that. I just happen to be the messenger. Number three... Outsiders are saved from certain destruction when they hear. Not everyone who hears will turn to God for salvation. And number three, ultimately, we come to be identified with the message that we bring. Second Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. Paul says... For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. We have one message. We have one ministry. We do the same thing everywhere that we go. Everywhere that we go... Because of the way that God works out His salvation and the spread of the kingdom, He he sends the news through these ambassadors or through these message bearers. But because the gospel is something that has been internalized for us, as we speak and as we proclaim what we have heard and what we have come to know and experience for ourselves, it gets to a point where the message and the messenger can't really be separated. If if the message is offensive to the hearer, 
more than likely the messenger will be offensive. If the message is encouraging, is joyful, is good, love, the messenger is going to be viewed that way as well. When you go back to Joshua, when you consider all the inhabitants of Jericho, when you consider all the Canaanite kings, they hear and they fear. In fact, they fear because they actually believe the report. Isn't that interesting? And yet, what does all the hearing and fearing do? They don't turn. In fact, they only dig in deeper. And because they know that God is working through His people, the people now become the enemy. So there's this brief snatch of time where the people in Canaan hear that God's people are coming, that He's created a people for Himself. They're on the doorstep. They've stepped in. They have a brief moment in time where God is preparing His people to receive their inheritance. And the benefit of that prep time is, is that even at that last minute, God is still bringing in prostitutes like Rahab to go from being a Canaanite to being an Israelite. And He does it The cost of admission is just the simple act of hearing. Do not underestimate this preparatory time in which we're waiting for bigger and better things to come. We're waiting and watching and desirous to put all of this burden and pain and suffering and this broken world and this broken creation behind us, do not underestimate what God is doing right now while you wait. Because the word of what God has already done in Christ is still seeping out, and He is still saving people from imminent judgment and destruction through His messengers. Hearing and feeding. Hearing and fearing. Feeding is now what we're looking at. All right, that's more. What is God doing in that preparatory time as it concerns the people who are on the outside? And the simple answer is, well, He's bringing outsiders in as He makes time, gives an opportunity for all outsiders to hear and to come, to hear, turn, and repent, to be saved from destruction. If they don't turn and repent... They seal their fate. But then there's another little, we, we, could, we could point to more than one, but for this morning, another little brief episode that happens in chapter 5. Something specific that God does for His people in the last stages of this prep time. So in Joshua chapter 5, skip down to verse 10. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. 
On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now, all finding it pretty cool, right? Manna, and then they eat, and now the manna's done with. All right, can you, if you're an Israelite, let's say you're 16. You're a teenager in the, in the wilderness years, and mom and dad and all their peers, it's always the parents' fault, right? They blow it. God says, okay, this generation that's running the show, they're not going to enter into the promised land. They're not going to enter into my rest. So 40 years is what it's going to take to whittle out this generation, and then your kids will go in and take what you refuse to take. So let's say you happen to be 16 when that happens. You have the distinct privilege of roaming around in the wilderness for 40 years And for all intents and purposes, every day, you get to eat the same thing. You're now 56, right? If you're 16, you're now 56. You've crossed over the Jordan River. You're in this little Ford operating base about to get ready to go do the real work of taking the land. You're 56, and for the first time, you don't have to eat manna for supper. Isn't that good? Now, here's the thing. Even though God was good and kind and gracious in miraculously providing manna for His people, we know full well that manna was not the ultimate prize and ultimate reward. God had promised to bring them into a land flowing not with manna, but milk and honey. It's going to be a rich land, vineyards, grazing land, farmlands, all of this. They cross over, and in this initial phrase, they've, they've just stepped into the, into the new land, and what do they get? They get a small taste of the good gift that's to come. That's what God is doing with us. Right? Even Jesus says in the Gospel of John, listen, all that stuff that, w- that was done with man of the bread from heaven was really supposed to get you ready for the true bread from heaven. Get you ready for me. And then after that, he says crazy things like, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, the Spirit is going to come. Jesus seems to indicate very clearly that a better gift than his, for right now anyway, that a better gift than his bodily presence with us is the Spirit's presence with us in this prep time as we wait for the kingdom. And then you go to places like Hebrews, where Hebrews talks about those who have tasted the good Word of God 
and the powers of the age to come. And so we say that we have only just begun to taste the fruit of our reward. We are very much in our prep time right now. So this is number one under feeding. We have only just begun to taste the fruit of our reward. It is a better gift to live on this side of the cross and the resurrection, to know Christ in a way that the Old Testament saints never did. It is a better gift to have the ministry of the Holy Spirit active in our hearts and minds on a daily basis. It is a better gift to have the Word of God written down that I can turn to on a whim. But, but, still, we know there's something better coming, right? Because, if we just want to limit it to the Word. As good as what it is that I have the Word and that I can feed on it, what I really, really want, what really is going to satisfy me, is to get beyond the page to see the Word incarnate. I, I want to see Jesus. I want to see the Word. That's what I want. I want my faith to be sight. Amen. And that will happen, and He's getting me ready for that. He's getting you ready for it as, as well. Even though it may seem like nothing is happening, and life is boring, and there's no real excitement, there's no real joy, do not underestimate the prep time. Because all of the things that God is giving you, and me, and us to enjoy right now are signs that He has something better for us just around the corner. Just like for the Israelites to get a little taste of the produce from the land was a reminder of, oh, this is going to be so good when it's finally ours. When you have those moments, when you're in the Word, far too rare in my mind anyway, but when you have those moments in the Word where it's like your eyes open, and it's like, oh my, it, God is speaking directly to me. That is a great, great gift. Oh, that it would happen every day. I wish it would. But even for that great gift to think, it's just a taste of what the experience is going to be when we're actually in the presence of Christ. And when we come to that day when you don't have to listen to knuckleheads preach and teach the Word of God, you get to go to the mountain of God and be taught by the Lord Himself. Oh. And everything that's happening now is getting you ready for that. Do not underestimate what God is doing in this prep time. Second point, and this is the one we'll close on. We have only just begun to taste the fruit of our reward. Number two, the promise, or we could say the reward, comes after we have finished our course. Not before. The Israelites get a taste, 
of the good things that the land is going to give them. They get a taste of the promise. They get their appetites whetted. And then what happens chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter? A lot of hard work. It's almost as if God gives them a little bit of a taste to provide a little bit of extra motivation for the legwork that now has to take place. you got to go in and you got to take the land. I'm going to give it to you, but you need to go in and take it. And that's going to be hard. And there are going to be casualties. And there are going to be bruises and wounds and welts. Some of you will die along the way. But you have to do this before you enter into that lasting rest. So in Hebrews 10, 35 and 36, the author of Hebrews implores us, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. See, the promise comes after the labor and the conquering and the fighting and the struggle. But it comes. So, I don't know where probably most of you are right now. You may be riding a high, maybe pressing through the valley, it may be a long, hard slog. I don't know what it is. But within the framework of the storyline of Scripture, I know where we are, and we are in between the time in which God lets us step into the kingdom, but just before we get to really step in and move around and enjoy it and take full possession of it. And for whatever reason, for however long he determines to wait, all of that is for a purpose. It's not wasted time, and God is getting you ready for your reward. He's getting you ready for your inheritance. And during this preparatory time, he is also getting others ready to enter in, to join with us so that they can enjoy the promise and the rest and the reward. Do not underestimate this time of preparation. Let's pray. Father, how good you are to give us exactly what we need in the moment and time in which we find ourselves. For all those who wait on you, you tell us, you promise that you satisfy their desires, that no one who waits on you, that no one who hopes in you will be disappointed. Father, we confess that life as we know it oftentimes can be very mundane, very boring, very hard, very perplexing. In fact, most of the time, our lives look nothing like, if, if we were to be the judge, look nothing like the promises that we preach, the hope that we continue to run to. But we ask that you would give us the grace to believe that even in this time of preparation, even as you get your church ready for our promised rest, that you would convince us of the fact that there is still miraculous work being done. 
that you are still active, that you have not gone silent, you have not fallen asleep, that you are moving and working according to plan and according to your timeline. I pray that for each and every person here today, that they would look with fixed eyes upon you and on the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, and that for the reward set before us, we would wait, we would labor, we would toil for however long is necessary, trusting that ultimately the reward will be worth it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with some corporate singing. Let me make one appeal. If you're here this morning and this future reward God doing things to save His people, if you, you don't know what in the world that is all about, that sounds as foreign to you as if I were speaking in a different language. I'll be at the back of the, at the, back of the church... If you want to wait and if you want to talk further, I'll, I'll stick around for as long as is necessary to answer any questions, to talk further, to explain more about what it is that we're talking about here today. The fact that God saves the people for himself, that he guards them, that he keeps them, that he brings them to this greater and future reward. For the rest of us, though, if you're already in, as it were, reflect and celebrate and get eager for this time of waiting and prep time to be over so that we can get on with the good stuff.